cry out about the suffering that he's facing, he starts by saying, I want, I've made a commitment to do this right. That's a great place to start in prayer. Lord, I just want to do this right. tonight at Psalms 16 through 20. Certainly the Psalms, as far as teaching, take a different little bend than I think many of the other books because they are so devotional in nature. In fact, the, the, the word tehillim in, in Hebrew means to worship, and it's the word that's used for Psalms. It, it oftentimes is a word that means to sing praises, not just to speak them. And we mentioned to you for a few weeks ago that all of these uh, wisdom books or these poetic books that begin with Job and go through the Song of Solomon are, are designed to increase or to facilitate your spiritual relationship with God in the present tense. Not a lot of um, focus upon the future except in the relationship that you have with God by hope. Not a lot of revelation of history other than the re, you know, rehearsal uh, of history that you can read in the historical books. So there is a tremendous you know, work of God's Spirit in bringing you into God's favor and presence and into fellowship with God in the here and now. And all of those books are designed, and all of these books are designed for this, that. So, in many ways, the Psalms is almost a devotional book that lists the prayers and the worship of others. You know, it's almost like eavesdropping when others pray in their situation, when others worship in their, in their joy, when others cry out in their despair. And then watching what God has done, and when you have the historical setting, seeing what God did as a result. Other times, just, you know, being able to join in and say, you know, David prayed like this, and so do I. I can relate to exactly what he is saying. So it's a beautiful way to learn the truths of God in action and applied to a daily relationship with the Lord. Um, and tonight, like I said, we'll go through 16 through 20. 73 of the 150 psalms David himself wrote, five of them tonight we get because his name is attached to all of them. And so we will continue with David, especially early on in the psalms. Most of them are written by David, the songwriter and the man after God's own heart. Notice verse, uh, or before verse 1 of chapter 16, there's a little uh, superscription there. It says, a michtam of David. Michtam. Um, the word means to engrave or to sculpt, but it implies something that is hidden or private and yet is such an impression that it, it should leave an impression like an engraving or a sculpture. The idea being, you know, when, when the Lord is through with you with this song or this psalm, it should leave that, that engraving upon you. And here you get a glimpse into the heart of David before God in prayer. You remember the story of the two disciples that left early Easter morning to go home all dejected. And they lived many miles away in Emmaus. They hit the road as soon as dawn broke when they were legally able to travel by Jewish law. And they were going home. You can read their story in Luke 24. One of the fellow's names was Cleopas. He is mentioned in chapter 24, verse 18 of um, Luke. If it is the same Cleopas who is mentioned in John 19, then the other disciple was Mary, his wife. We can't be sure of that. There could be, I guess, more than one Cleopas, but, I mean, really, how popular could that name have been? 
So it is possible that it was just Mary and Cleopas, the husband and wife, two disciples from um, Emmaus who had come. And you remember the story about how frustrated they were and how Jesus spent the entire afternoon on Easter Day with them. I find that amazing. You know, the morning time was spent appearing to a lot of disciples who were just brokenhearted. The evening was spent gathering them together in the upper room and just sharing with them and ministering to them. But the entire afternoon was spent with a couple walking home. And you remember that the Lord began at Moses, went through the prophets, expounding through the scriptures, all that pertained to himself. And they said, our hearts are just burning, just burning within us. I'm not sure of all of the scriptures that Jesus would have covered with them as he gave them that personal one-on-one Bible study, the old mentoring, you know, along the road. But I'm sure that this psalm was among them because towards the end of this psalm, there is that promise from God to not leave his son dead or in hell or seeing corruption in his flesh. And Peter will take those verses at the end of this, uh, beginning in verse 8, I think, And he will quote them on Pentecost to preach that Jesus rose from the dead. Paul in Acts 13 will stand up in the synagogue in Antioch, use the same verses again to to encourage those Jews to believe in Christ. So David, as he writes this michtam, this engraving, this hidden truth in his heart that he had been learning, writes of the resurrection But I doubt that he understood so much what he was writing as much as he hoped and desired that he was reflecting God's heart. We know looking back it was a prophecy of his son that he would not be decaying, literally, see corruption. Um, Something David could not have necessarily hoped for in life, yet with his limited understanding of the grave, it becomes one of those great statements of faith, kind of like Job when he said, I know my Redeemer lives and One day he's going to stand at last upon the earth, and after my skin is destroyed in my flesh, I'm going to see God. And then he said, I just wish I were dead. You know, I I said, no, I don't. It's one of those revelations that God brings. And for David, certainly in writing this uh, particular passage, it was a future that he was looking at with very limited understanding, and it seems to just rank up there with, you know, that revealed wisdom from the Lord that you find so often. But it starts, the psalm does, this hidden sculpture or engraving speaking about David's relationship with God he says in verse 1 preserve me God for in you I put my trust O my soul you have said to the Lord you are my Lord my goodness is nothing apart from you that's a pretty good way to start praying you know David's life as a believer in the Old Testament was lived in the awareness of the goodness that God gave to David in fact There are three words used for God in these two verses. The word for God in verse 1 is the Hebrew word El, which is a singular of Elohim. But it speaks of that, and it's the most common name for God in the Bible. It's unique in that it means the mighty one or the strong one, and it is used to describe God as distinct from all of the other gods of of men. The word Lord or Jehovah or Yahweh is God's personal name to his own, He always uses it to prove that he keeps his word. And then the other Lord there in uh, verse 2 after the all capital Lord is the word Adonai or master. So, you know, David's heart, he had committed himself to the Lord. You're my Lord. You're, you're, You're the God of my life. I don't have anything that is good apart from you. 
I will wait for you. I will trust you. I will look for you to preserve me. That's a good way to pray. And, and to know that apart from you, I have no goodness, you know, that's, that's a great thing to see. That's a humble place to be. The result of his walk with the Lord in verse 3 was that he said, As for the saints who are on the earth, they are the excellent ones, in whom is all of my delight, and their sorrows will be multiplied who hasten after another God or drink the offerings of blood that I will not offer nor take up their names on my lips. So David's commitment of himself to the Lord resulted in his fellowship with others like-minded. The result of his walk was he hung around with people who loved the Lord. You know, on the one hand, he loved God's people. On the other hand, he, he divorced himself away from fellowship with the wicked. David spent time among the saints. There is some tremendous benefit, you know, to realizing that, that there's great strength to be found in the body. You know, a lot of you and I wouldn't make it without the body. You know, we need that strength. And you might ask yourself, you know, like David, do you love, you know, hanging out with the Christians and seeking out time with them? And do you long to be in church or do you find yourself very uncomfortable in the world? Your answers to those questions will say much about where you stand with God. You know, if you can just live your life in the world and not feel at all put out, I, that's a dangerous place to be. You know, loving God would, would say that you would be uncomfortable in the world. Gathering with the saints, and I, we've said it to you before, but the church is the place where you find fellowship. The world is the place you find ministry, and it cannot change. You can't have fellowship. I'm just going to go out to the bar with the guys after work just for some fellowship. You can't. You can go to work and be a witness and be a light and be a prayer warrior and be an example, but you can't go for fellowship. What fellowship has light with darkness? You should be in church, though. You should hang around Christians. People should know your name and know your number and be able to get a hold of you, and you should be accountable to someone. And as the church grows, you can't know everyone, and that's all right. But you can always know five or ten people that you can depend upon and are friends with and, and grow together. And, and David said, I delight myself in the saints, but I refuse to participate with those who worship other gods. I know where they're headed. Their sorrows will just be multiplied. So he lived in God's presence. He's devoted to God's ways. He's relations, his relationships are with others in Christ or in Christ in the Old Testament sense, in the Lord. And then he writes about his faith, verse 5. O Lord, you are the portion of my inheritance and my cup, and you maintain my lot. The lines have fallen to me in a pleasant place, and I have a good inheritance. I will bless the Lord who has given me counsel. My heart also instructs me in the night seasons. I've set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be moved. And therefore, my heart is glad, and my glory rejoices, and my flesh can rest in hope. Now, though David was certainly at this time on the run from Saul and unable to go to the land, if you will. Now, the Lord had promised, you know, David and, and, and David's tribe all of that portion around um, Bethlehem. So those were his places. He could, that's where he was to be allowed to live and to rejoice but notice that David looks to the Lord as his inheritance, and he says, you have set my lines, or set the line, if you will. Um, the lines have fallen. It, it's the word for a boundary marker. I have no homeland at this point. He lived in the dirt and in the caves. 
but God had set for David boundaries that were pleasant to him. He could live where God had placed him and it brought joy to his life. You know, as long as Saul was on the throne, David couldn't go home, but he could enjoy the Lord. So though it wasn't maybe the way that it might have been to him, you know, the Lord was his portion and his inheritance. In other words, God would maintain all that belonged to him, would maintain his lot. This is, this is yours, David, but Lord, I don't have anything, but you have me. And so though he didn't have a boundary, David found great security in God's rulership in his life. And he even, you know, would ask and say there in verse 8, because he is at my right hand and the Lord is always before me, I won't be moved. Who's going to move God's boundaries in my life? So blessed, David just recognized that though he didn't have anything physically at the time, he had a lot to be thankful for because God's hand had blessed by guiding him. Notice what he says in verse 7, I'll bless the Lord, he's given me counsel and he's instructed me at night. And so I've set his counsel, or the Lord before me, and his strength, he's at my right hand, I won't be moved. Awesome to know, you know, I, I look at the church and I think, you know, here's a bunch of people that are guided by the Lord. There's no psychic networks here, you know. There's no astrologers here, the philosophies of men. I mean, we, got, we come together and we open the Bible and say, Lord, teach us. Here's a group of people being guided by God in what they do and how they do it. And David sees himself as guided by the Lord, guarded by the Lord in his ways there at verse 8. He's at my right hand. That's where the strength lies. The enemy didn't have that. And he was glad. Notice in verse 9, because of that, I'm glad. I have an inheritance. I have a Lord. I have instruction. I've got direction. My heart is filled. My glory is to be rejoicing. Here's the fringe benefits of being saved. And my flesh, even my flesh, can rest in hope. And then he writes these very prophetic words. For you will not leave my soul in Sheol, or the grave, if you will. Nor will you allow your Holy One to seek corruption. You will show me a path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand there will be pleasures forevermore. Now, like I said, David did not see Jesus at the end of this prophecy. <laughs> David saw David hoping to one day have life beyond this life. And the logic of faith for David was that God had a future, that he wouldn't be abandoned in the grave, that, that death would not swallow him up so that he was no more. Yet in so writing by faith, he declares by God's hand and by the Holy Spirit the glory of Jesus' resurrection because he would be the one that would first rise. He wouldn't decay. He wouldn't stay in the grave. They would kill him, all right. They would bury him, but he'll be back. And David summed it up for himself that the future for him was a presence with God that was filled with joy and pleasure forevermore when you sit at God's right hand, when God is there to be your provider. So David didn't have much. But if you'll notice his hidden sculpture of his heart or the engraving on his heart was a total dedication to the Lord and his people and a willingness to rest in God's provision even when it seemed like very little because the long term looked pretty good. I'm not going to stay in the grave. I'm not going to rot away in the, in the dirt. The Lord's going to give me a portion. There's going to be joy waiting for me. A thousand B.C. now he is writing these things. Psalm 17 is introduced as a prayer of David. It's the first one that is called this in the Psalms up to this point. And from the prayer that he prays, it is obvious that he is in 
tremendous and under tremendous pressure from Saul and his armies. He, he wants to be delivered. He needs to be delivered. He just feels like he's about to snap. So he cries out in verse 1, Hear a just cause, Lord, and attend to my cry. Give ear to my prayer, which is not from deceitful lips, and let my vindication come from your presence, and let your eyes look on the things that are upright. You have tested my heart and visited me in the night and tried me and found nothing. For I have purposed that my mouth should not transgress concerning the works of men, and by the words of your lips I have kept away from the path of the destroyer, so uphold my steps in your path that my footsteps may not slip. I love the way David prays, and, and, and you know, he, he argues with God, you've looked in my heart, you know that my, my heart is not deceitful, I'm not trying to pull the wool over your eyes, I've got tremendous innocence in this, but I need your help. I, I've made a purpose in my heart. I'm not going to sin with my lips. I'm not going to join in with the world. I'm not going to walk in the ways of sin. And, and notice in verse 4, I'm going to stay away from the path of the destroyer. It's interesting that in David's, you know, dealing with Saul, David had more than one opportunity to walk down the sin's path. How many times were his buddies saying, let's kill Saul. We've got him now. You can get rid of the headache. And David was almost caught up in it once, and the second time he was all ready for it. He said, no, this isn't the way God would work, that I should lay my hand on God's anointing. Let God get rid of him. God put him in charge, you know. So I'm not going to take the wrong way to do the right thing. And as he is praying here, and as you get down to the bottom of this uh, psalm, and you hear what has really become a concern in David's heart, uh, beginning there in verse 9, when he begins to cry out about the suffering that he is facing, he starts by saying, I want, I've made a commitment to do this right. That's a great place to start in prayer. Lord, I just want to do this right. I want to do it in a way that, and handle these trials in such a way that it will honor you when we're finished. I think there is a part that you and I can play in obeying the Lord. You know that you just say to yourself, whatever it takes, I'm going to do this right. And by the time that this is all finished, I'm going to be able to look to the Lord and the victory that he's brought and know that I haven't taken the roads of sin to accomplish it, but I have a clear conscience and an open heart, and I want God's best. And when it came to David and his running, that's what he wanted. He wanted to please the Lord in all that he had done, and I hope that's your heart too. I want to please God. He says in verse 6, I have called upon you for you will hear me, God. So incline your ear to me and hear my speech and show your marvelous kindness by your hand of strength, your right hand. O oh, you who save those who trust in you from those who rise up against them. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me under the shadow of your wings from the wicked who oppress me and the deadly enemy who surrounds me. David stood in great confidence and, and you know, prayer is such a good way to, I think, work out what you know and believe about God. But notice that David started by saying, I want to do this right, and you know my heart. Second of all, I, I pray because I know you listen to those who love you and who trust in you, and I know that you work in their behalf, so that's why I'm coming to you. I need you to save me from those who rise up against me, and I know that I'm the apple of your eye. What a great way to view yourself. You know, rather than going to the Lord so often saying, well, what have I done wrong this time? How come you don't love me anymore? 
David saw himself with great confidence as a man whom God loved and would care for, as the apple of his eye, literally the focus of his attention and concern. And David quotes out of two Old Testament songs, actually, Exodus 15 and um, Deuteronomy chapter 32. Both songs sung by the nation when God had faithfully come through to deliver the people greatly outnumbered, but yet those that were the apple of his eye and his love delivered, faithful. So David grabs a hold of other scriptures. He, he puts them in his prayer life and reminds himself that this is the way God acts. He even uses some beautiful poetic imagery. Hide me under the shadow of your wings. That sounds pretty good, doesn't it? I doubt God has wings, but good place to hang out with the Lord hovering over you, you know, then you're pretty safe. Hey, Lord, how you doing? I'm glad you're handling it. You know, I'll be down here if you need me. Hiding under his shadow. Well, then he gets finally to his prayer, verse 9, and my cause, my commitment, I want to do this right. I'm not going to take sin's path. I'm praying because you hear, you love those who call upon you. I want to see your deliverance from, verse 9, the wicked who oppress me, from the deadly enemies that surround me. They have closed up their fat hearts, and their mouths are just speaking proudly. They have now surrounded us in our steps, and they have set their eyes crouching down to the earth as a, li a lion who is eager to tear his prey, or like a young lion who is lurking in secret places. So, Here's the problem. Finally, David gets to the issue. These deadly enemies who continue to surround David and his men, fat and proud in their own ways, pretty descriptive, lying in wait with some insatiable appetite to kill David like a lion hungry and hiding. That's how David felt. He felt like the prey, you know. He didn't, he didn't feel like the sandwich. He felt like the chicken, you know, in the sandwich. And he didn't know where else to turn. Come, Lord, deliver me. Verse 13, arise, Lord, confront him and cast him down and deliver my life from the wicked with your sword and with your hand from men, Lord. For men of the world who have their portion in this life, whose belly you fill with hidden treasure, they're satisfied with children and yet they leave the rest of their possession for their babes. So, Come and help me, God, and deliver me from people whose entire life and inheritance is here. They pass along what they own. That's about it. There's no life being passed along. They get it here, but I want it there with you. You deliver me. As for me, verse 15, here's what I want. I want to see your face in righteousness. When I arrive in your presence, I want to, I want to see your face by having walked right with God. And when I awake, I will be satisfied that I have your likeness. You see, David has lived an entirely different life than the people in the world did. Here's the prayers of a righteous man. I want to do this right. It's a good way to pray, isn't it? It's an awesome way to approach your problems, you know. I have a better future under God's care than the people in the world do who seem to have it all here but have nothing to do with God. In Psalm 18, you'll see there's quite an introduction it reads, to the chief musician, a psalm of David, the servant of the Lord, who spoke to the Lord the words of this song on the day that the Lord delivered him from the hand of all of his enemies and from the hand of Saul, and he said. <laughs> uh, it, this is, by the way, the first long psalm we've come to, too. Isn't it pretty long? It's like 50 verses. It is the second longest introduction to a psalm in all of the psalms except for Psalm 60. But you do get the occasion for the writing. That always helps. 
The occasion for the writing, if you go back to 2 Samuel 22 and 23, is that David wrote this at the end of his life. God had taken care of Saul. There came a time when there was no enemies left for Israel to fight. It had peace. It had a larger boundary than they had ever had. Except for a few minor changes in these 50 verses, this entire psalm is found word for word in 2 Samuel chapter 22. In fact, 2 Samuel 22 verse 1 begins with the words, Then David spoke to the Lord the words of this song in the day when the Lord had delivered him from the hands of all of his enemies and from the hand of Saul. And then you get this entire song. So um, if the words were there first, the melody is here. And David comes to the end of his life, and he reviews how God has blessed him as the king, how faithful God has been to get him through the 15 years of dealing with Saul and his family, seven and a half years of running, seven and a half years more of running from his children, so to speak, of how God had given him victory in literally every battle that he had ever fought. And in the context of his worshiping the Lord, you find hidden in them, like always, this work of the Holy Spirit in kind of hiding under there the truths of the things of Jesus and what would be coming. So, for example, verse 49 of this uh, psalm, Paul quotes in chapter 15 to say that Jesus had come to save both Jew and Gentile. And we ought to praise the Lord that he wants to save all men. David really experienced three tremendous deliverances in his life, from Saul, from the enemies of Israel, and then later on from Absalom, his son, and his men. And on his deathbed, because this is where this song was written, this is like, you know, the, the, the song of the eulogy, if you will. This is what the Lord did in my life. And you get some awesome insights into a man's life, David's life, after he had lived all of those years, and then you get to kind of listen in on his private prayer. So here's what he said in the day that he was, you know, on his deathbed, knowing that any day now the Lord was going to take him home. And he writes these words in the song itself. I will love you, Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock, my fortress, my deliverer, my God, my strength in whom I trust. He is my shield and the horn of my salvation and my stronghold. I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and so shall I be saved from my enemies. The pangs of death surrounded me. The floods of ungodliness made me afraid, and the sorrow of the grave or shield surrounded me. The snares of death confronted me, and in my distress I called on the Lord and, he, and cried out to my God, and he heard my voice from his temple, and my cry came before him even to his ears. Now David, as an old-timer looking back, you know, what was the contented worshiper, and he began to add up how God had spared him all of his life. He used a lot of words to describe the Lord, my strength, my rock, my fortress, my deliverer, my shield, the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I don't doubt that they all related to David running and hiding and jumping and just barely getting out of the way. Oh, the Lord got me through that one, you know. You could make a list, I'm sure, of the same. Maybe not one step ahead of crazy Saul, but one step ahead of crazy something. And each of the words, if you really want to, you know, do some devotional studies, is worthy of working them through because David uses them a lot, you know. And, and you might just write down for yourself, how has the Lord been your strength? When? 
And when has he been your place of hiding? And when has he been your shield to protect you? And when did you find your greatest strength in standing with him? David uses great poetic language because he was good at it to speak about how the Lord had brought deliverance in times past to others and how he had found the same thing to be true in his own life. So he writes, beginning in verse 7, poetically so, Then the earth shook and trembled, and the foundations of the hills quaked, were shaken because he was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils, a devouring fire from his mouth, and coals were kindled by it. And he bowed the heavens and came down with darkness under his feet, riding upon a cherub and flying upon the wings of the wind. He made darkness his perfect place. Canopy around him was dark waters and thick clouds of the skies. From the brightness before him, his thick clouds passed with hailstones of coal and fired, and the Lord thundered from heaven. And the Most High uttered his voice, and the hailstones and the coals of fire and he sent out arrows and scattered the foe and lightning in abundance and vanquished them. And the channels of the sea were seen and the foundation of the world uncovered. Even at your rebuke, O Lord, and at the blast of the breath of your nostrils. He sent from above and took me and drew me out of many waters. He delivered me from strong enemies and those who hated me that were too strong for me. And they confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. And he brought me to a broad place, and he delivered me because he delighted in me. It's interesting that David, as he begins to speak about the quakes and the earthquakes and the lightning and the Lord speaking and darkness and all, it is much the description of God's um, meeting with the children of Israel there in, the, in Mount Sinai when he gave them the law. When they, for the first time, got to hear from God that God was no one to be messed with. You know, that the Lord would declare to have his way, that the Lord would, would put his foot down, that, that he was holy and you couldn't just approach him from any direction. And David, in writing the song and, and singing the song to the Lord, you know, makes mention of God's awesome work in, in bringing victory and deliverance and power to others. And then he writes of himself, well, the Lord did that for me, verse 16. He, he got me many times out of some pretty tough spots from those who were stronger than I was, who hated me, who were driven to destroy me, but the Lord supported me. He delivered me into a very wide place, a, a free place, and I know that he delivered me because he delighted in me. It's always good, I think, to be able to read the Bible and then find out what God has done for others and then experience it yourself. Oh, God did that for me too, you know, as he did for David. And so David reads about what the Lord had done in times past and how the Lord had moved in many battles for the sake of his own, vanquishing the enemy, lightning in abundance, driving away those who were, you know, against the Lord at his rebuke and then doing that for him. In verse 20, David gives a principle of truth that I think is worth hanging on to. If you want to see God work in your life, you have to be walking with him or pressing ahead. You know, you want to be where the Lord is if you want to see God work. So he writes in verse 20, The Lord rewarded me according to my righteousness and the cleanliness of my hands. He has recompensed me. I've kept the ways of the Lord. I've not de wickedly departed from my God. All of his judgments were before me. I didn't put away his statutes from me. I was blameless before him. I kept myself from iniquity. Therefore, the Lord has recompensed me according to to my righteousness and the cleanness of my hands in his sight. 
With the merciful, you show yourself merciful. With a blameless man, you show yourself blameless. And with the pure, you will show yourself pure. But with the devious, you will show yourself shrewd. And you will save the humble while bringing down those with haughty looks. You will light my lamp. The Lord my God will enlighten my darkness. For by you, I can run against a troop. And by my God, I can leap over a wall. But as for God, his ways are perfect. And the word of the Lord is proven that he is a shield to all who trust in him. Now, don't misread this and say, well, that's kind of cocky of David. Yeah, the Lord paid me back for being so holy. You won't find that attitude with David anywhere in the scriptures. You won't even find it in this psalm. But David's point is that God works with those who seek to work with God. That there's more that we can do than just go, oh, you know, I just can't do anything. No, you can't. You can determine to walk with God and to obey his word. You can pray along those lines. And David realized that much of the blessings of God upon his life, where he could run through a troop and jump over a wall and not be hurt, was because he had determined to walk with God. He threw it in there in a couple of places. For those who trust you, those you bless. For those who are right in their hearts before you. To those who keep themselves from iniquity. To those who want clean hands and, and are merciful and will be pure. Then God can do great things. Don't think for a minute that, you know, grace means that you sit and do nothing. Grace hardly means that at all. We, we have to press ahead and, 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 and live holy lives because you're going to reap what you sow. Notice verse 25 and 26. You reap what you sow. God loves the humble. He's not bragging here. He's just stating that if you desire God, God will desire you. And notice verse 27, I think, shows his heart. God will save the humble, bring down the haughty. He's hardly, you know boasting of himself only to write, yeah, I know God blesses humble people. I'm just not one of those. No, he's saying that, that the devotion is such that if you'll walk with God in that light, you'll find God's best. That's always so. The Lord looks for those who are seeking him. That's what God wants from us. From verse 31 down through verse then 45, David repeats poetically everything he has just said. But this time he changes the application from a general truth to a specific truth, a personal terms, if you will. So he writes in verse 31, Who is God except Yahweh? Who is our rock except our God? It is God who arms me with strength and makes my way perfect, lest you think he is boasting. He makes my feet like the feet of the deer. He sets me on high places. He teaches my hands to make war so that I can have arms that could bend a bow of bronze. You have given me the shield of your salvation. Your right hand has held me up. Your gentleness has made me great. That's one of my favorite verses. Your gentleness has made me great. You enlarged my path under me so that my feet didn't slip. David on his deathbed looking back. I've, I've been faithful to the Lord. He's recompensed me for my willingness to walk with God. But all of my strength, all of my goodness, all my accomplishment has been his work. I've pursued my enemies and overtaken them. I didn't turn back until they were destroyed. I've wounded them so they couldn't rise. They've fallen under my feet, for you have armed me with the strength for the battle. You have subdued under me those who rose up against me. You have given me the necks of my enemies so that I destroyed those who hated me. They cried out, but there was none to save, even to the Lord, but he did not answer them. I beat them as fine as the dust before the wind and cast them like dirt in the street. You have delivered me from the striving of people and made me the head of the nations. 
A people I have not known shall serve me. As soon as they hear of me, they obey me. Foreigners submit to me. Foreigners fade away, come frightened from their hideouts. But the Lord lives, so blessed be my rock. Let God of my salvation be exalted. It is God who will avenge me, subdue the people under me, deliver me from my enemies, you also. You lift me up above those who rise against me. You've delivered me from violent men. So I'm going to give thanks to you, Lord, among the Gentiles and sing praises to your name. For great deliverance he gives to his king. He shows mercy to his anointed, to David and his descendants forever. What a great way to die. Plenty of reasons to rejoice. But listen to this old timer on his deathbed. God rewards those who seek him. And at the end of your life, what a great idea if you could write a 50-verse psalm of God's accomplishments in your life. Psalm 19, a psalm of David, is a very short psalm, but it focuses on one issue, the, the revelation of God of himself in the world that he has made through his word that he has given. So that he is God of creation and God of revelation in fact, creation is an even older testament than the Bible. God's first revelation. Verse 1. The heavens declare, David writes, the glory of God. The firmament will show his handiwork, and day unto day they will utter their speech, and night unto night they will reveal knowledge. And there is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out throughout all of the earth. Their words to the end of the world. And in them, he has set a tabernacle for the son who, like a bridegroom's, comes out of his chamber, rejoicing like a strong man to run its race. It rises, its rising is from one end of the heavens to the circuit of the other end, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. So he starts with the revelation of God in creation. And God certainly is revealed in what he has made. There's an undeniable testimony to God in the world. Paul when he wrote in, in, in Romans chapter 1 of God's existence and power being set on display, said that since the creation of the world, the invisible attributes of God are clearly understood by those that are made, that there is the external power of God on display. In other words, if you just look around, you can't help but conclude there is order behind the universe, there is a creator behind the order. There's intelligent design. Now that's just not a haphazard guess. That would be the conclusion of any rational person. That these things that we see on display, the heavens and earth, are created. They didn't just come into being. There's way too much complexity and way too much order. You know, the thought that you could kick the dirt in your, in your flower beds for years and out will pop a watch one day would just make you nuts. Of course that won't happen. Just dirt clods will come out. But to think that this just kind of came to be, you know, is foolishness. So the revelation of God, notice verse 2, is continuous. Day to day, day by day, never stops. There's never a day when the testimony of God's creativeness does not go forth in abundance. It pours forth speech. The utter speech, it, it literally means it gushes forth. There's so much evidence to support creation. From the skies to the plants, to the animal kingdom, to the human body, it is self-evident knowledge that requires no degree or special insight or some kind of, you know, mind that is great in its work to conclude there's a God. Every tribal people on the earth, 
conclude that there's God. They call him different names, they conclude different things about him, then they go about writing what, you know, the folklore that is attached to it. But there isn't one group that says, well, no, this is just, you know, nature. No, 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 there's a God behind it for them. They watch, they see, they know. And the Revelation, verse 3, is universal. Every language, every culture, every speech, the same witness goes out throughout all of the world. And the words of God's creation are just that. The glory of the sun, David writes. <laughs> and as a young shepherd, I'm sure he watched it rise in the east and set in the west. And it just seemed to endlessly travel. And there it goes. And there it is again. And it would run like a bridegroom would run to, you know, get his bride. Or like the, the fellow who thought he could win the dash. David just saw that thing moving through the skies every day as a testimony of who God was. It would dissolve the darkness in the morning. would take off the chill at night. And I don't think David understand about hydrogen gases, you know, and how they can transmit heat to the earth. I don't think he got any of that, but he just went, wow, look at God did. I mean, pretty good. Takes four minutes for heat to arrive here from the sun. I doubt David knew that. He just knew it was warmer when the sun was out. This is good. And then he goes from the revealed God of creation to the personal God of revelation in verse 7. And he compares what God has said to what God has done. Speaking of the law, he says, The law of the Lord is perfect. It'll convert your soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure. It'll make wise the simple. The, the statutes of the Lord are right. They will rejoice your heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure. It will enlighten the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean and enduring forever. And the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Now, you can't stop with nature if it's God that you want to know, because all you can come up with is that there is a creator. You'll never learn about the love of God in a sinful, fallen world. All you'll see is the effect of sin. Animals devour each other. Well, they get a chance to devour you. You know, things are in upheaval, but yet there is enough order to say God created. But you'll need his word to know his heart. His existence you can prove by looking around. His love, you'll need to turn to his word. So David picks these Hebrew parallelisms, you know, six of them. And notice the nouns, law, testimony, statue, commandment, fear, and judgment. And then he compares them to what they accomplish. The word can challenge us in verse 7. It's perfect. The Torah, the law, is complete. It'll convert your heart, and it is simple to understand. The testimony of the Lord is simple. I love that. <laughs> I always worry when people have to write 100 pages to tell me something. You know, I, I've been studying for Hebrews, which is a hard book to teach. I, I hope you'll come Wednesday nights and labor through it with me and cheer when I'm confused. Thank you. But when people have to write 100 pages to say something, I figure it's probably wrong because it shouldn't take the 100. It's simple. And I am per, like you, I think. I like simple. Easily understood. The word of the Lord is perfect. It'll change my heart. It'll convert my life. It is simple. It'll make me wise. The word in verse 10 consecrates me. Once I'm hungry for gain. Now I'm hungry to just know the Lord. Notice what it says. More to be desired is it than gold. Even more than much fine gold that is sweeter than honey in the honeycomb. And by those even more your servant is warned. And in keeping the word there is great reward. The word will consecrate. The word will change us and touch us. 
Just look at Zacchaeus. You know, he made his living ripping people off until he met Jesus. Then he wanted to give it all back. God's word got into his life. The desire to know God in his word is the fruit of the indwelling of God's spirit in your heart. The word will convict, it will guide, it will profit, it'll cleanse, it'll bring rest. It'll, it'll deal with your heart, it'll keep you in line. You need it. So you have the, the, the revelation of God through his word and the testimony of God on display in creation. You have both you know, external, if you will, evidence and then an internal call from God. And David couldn't be more thrilled to talk about God's word. Who can understand his own errors, David writes in verse 12. Lord, cleanse me from secret faults and keep your servant from presumptuous sins. Don't let them have dominion over me that I could be blameless and innocent of the great transgression. And let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength, my redeemer. I, I know God exists. I know his word will change me. I know his word is right and pure and clean and and true and righteous, and I just want it in my life so that I don't end up sinning silently or secretly or presumptuously. I just want what comes out of my mouth and what dwells in my heart to please the God who sees all of those things. But notice it's the awareness of God's presence and then the awareness of God's word. Finally, in Psalm 20, David gives us insight into a nation that is headed for war. Much of David's life was spent fighting. I mean, the Lord basically said, you can't build a temple. You're a man who has shed, in, not innocent blood, but shed blood in, in battle. And here is one of those times when the nation was facing a battle and the people were crying out to their king. They wanted the king to lead them. They wanted the king to communicate to them what God wanted. And it is one of those psalms which speaks about you know, God saving the king and his people, but the plea for help comes from the people to the king, and the hope is that the king then can turn to the Lord. How good would that be to have legislators and administrators and overseers who don't do anything until they pray? You know, there can be no doubt when war is on the horizon, people turn to religious things. It's true in the psalm. We have certainly seen it here, you know, when uh, the, the first Gulf War started for four weeks. We had a ton more people in church. When 9-11 happened, you know, the next couple of weeks, we had a lot of people showing up. and They didn't have a Bible. They hadn't got a clue. They just, oh, yeah, we just want to be here, you know, right now. And, and it was okay to pray, you know, publicly. We've kind of lost sight of that already. But you could speak to God everywhere. War drives people to pray because it's out of their control. It's so for the people in, da in David's day. So... Here, here the people crying out, and the king as well. Uh, in fact, the, the psalm ends with the words, Save, Lord, may the king answer us when we call. But it, it, it's an application as to the leadership of the overseer at a time when war is beckoning and, and God is necessary. So verse uh, 1 of chapter 20, May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble, and may the name of the God of Jacob defend you. They wanted a leader who was in touch with God. I think that's something we should pray for too. You know, whenever you read God of Jacob, by the way, there's always the implication that it's the God who is very patient. Not the God of Israel, God of Jacob. Jacob was the guy who was rebelling, you know, and working it out on his own. So whenever you read God of Jacob, that's, that's the Jacob that wasn't doing so well. And yet God was there faithfully waiting to take him through. Patient, loving God. We need the Lord to answer us in the day of our trouble 
And may the name of the God of Jacob defend us. May it be that patient God who's been patient with us, but yet we're still there. Verse 2 says, may he remember your offerings and accept your burnt sacrifice. You see, they wanted a leader who was in touch with God personally. Any nation who exists for any length of time is not going to be able to defend itself just militarily. God is going to have to rule. That's true in your life. It's true in the people's life. It's true in the life of the king. But the king can find great wisdom by walking with God personally. And that's what sacrifice is all about. That's not national. The king offers sacrifice for himself. So they prayed in verse 2 that the Lord might send to them help from the sanctuary and strength out of Zion that he could remember the offerings and accept the sacrifice. They wanted a fellow who was in touch with God who would, in time of crisis, not go through religious motions because his life was one of offering sacrifice to the Lord. In verse 4, May he grant you, according to your heart's desire, to fulfill all of your purposes. So, they wanted a king that would seek God's counsel. It seems like we are far from that today, oftentimes politically, especially in, in how we've removed the Lord from the schools and from our public life and from the steps of the Capitol and from the, you know, the Ten Commandments can't be in the court. And we, we just don't like having, you know, re remembrances of God around. I remember seeing in Washington, D.C. a few years ago, um, the picture of George Washington after his victory in Germantown in Philadelphia and, and his men were starving and, and the, it was freezing cold. And he showed up to encourage the troops. And what he did was he got on his knees and prayed with them. And there, there's a great picture that someone had painted. I forget the guy's name. But it, it's George Washington up to his you know, ears in the snow with guys that just looked like they wanted to die. And, and, and his, his comfort for them is, you know, we'll do fine if we can seek the Lord. That's what David is, is, is writing about here. You know, may he grant you your heart's desire to fulfill all of your purposes. So verse 5, we will rejoice in your salvation. In the name of our God, we will set up our banners. May the Lord fulfill your petition. The, the words under your banner is always that, that marching order. You know, we're going to go out to victory trusting in God. That's going to be our, our marching banner. We're going to stand behind the, we're going with the Lord here. And uh, we're going to rejoice in his salvation. And we're going we're to ask the Lord to answer our prayers. No atheists in foxholes. Now I know, verse 6, that the Lord saves his anointed and will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving strength of his right hand. Some may trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. They have bowed down and fallen, but we will be risen and stand upright. So save, Lord, and may the king answer us when we call. So the king, of, uh, the response of the king, and, and by the way, the word he some trusts um, is in the past tense at least the way that it's written. So there's a pause where the king responds in verse 9, uh, in verse 6, I'm sorry to say, you know, there might be some people who have trusted in times past in their, their, their own strength and their horses or their chariots. I'm going to trust the Lord. We're going to remember God's name. That's the kind of nationalistic king that David hoped to be, you know, and may God make it so. So save, Lord, and may the king answer us when we call. May he have answers. <laughs> may have wisdom and direction from God. Beautiful prayer of David the king from the king's perspective. Next week, 
Um, 21 through 25, we're going to try to stay at the five clip. Seems to be a good speed. And uh, may the Lord continue to draw you close to him as you study the prayers of these others who have walked with him. Father, tonight as we sit together, we thank you that you are the God who has made all things and then made yourself known to us through your word. So that we know a God of God who has great power, but then a God who uses that power to exhibit great love. And as you've made the heavens and the earth, you've also made us unique. And you've set us over your creation, and now you've called us to yourself. And Lord, tonight as we sit together, and, and thank you for all the folks who come so diligently sunny nights to go through your word, or Wednesday nights to really diligently study more so than just on the morning service. May we truly believe that the law of the Lord is perfect and that by studying your word, we're going to see our souls converted and that your testimony to, to us not only is sure, but it will make us simple people wise. May we believe, and Lord, may we know that your statutes are right, that they will bring joy to our hearts and that your commandment is pure, but it will open our eyes to see things properly, that if we have the fear of the Lord, it will keep us clean and it will endure. And Lord, may we know that your judgments are true and right. And may we want them more than gold itself. And may we love them more than honey upon our tongue. May we be warned, may we be blessed, may we keep them and find great reward. And Father, as we watch David and, and, and in the weeks to come, others write and pray, bring us to that place of great confidence in you. That our trust and our hope, that our joy and our peace, that as David said, you know, I'm going to do it right. I don't want to go down sin's path to find God's best. I won't find it there anyway. But may we truly, Lord, be those who desire more than anything else to just pray as righteous people, to come to the end of our life with thanksgiving and the willingness and the ability to just look back and say, oh, look what God has done for us. And may we have a long psalm at the end of our life. May we write a long one as we rejoice in the God who is our Savior and rock and deliverer and Lord and shield and horn of salvation and our strength. Maybe tonight you find yourself, you know, removed from the Lord. But look, here's some, you know, prayers of David that find himself just struggling, struggling with enemies, struggling with trials, finding great difficulty, not being in his homeland or his, even, you know, what God had given him and his tribe, that, that land that he could call his own. He was on the run. And yet he found great joy in just being longing to the Lord who would set up the markers and, and finding great joy in his, in his guidance as he, you know, guarded him and watched him and counseled him and, and directed him. And he found joy. He didn't know it yet, but he was going to heaven and he was sure that somehow, some way, he would one day find great joy in God's presence, his likeness. May you develop a relationship with God that applies the scriptures to your life. May you find that God not only says these things, he wants you to believe him and walk in them. And may you rest, because certainly in this day and age in which we live, it is God's peace that will provide you with great opportunity to be a witness. The world just can't rest. It's got no place to look. 
but your God reigns. And he will one day stand upon the earth. And you with him. So it's not going to be too bad. <laughs> We're going to walk with God. See what God will do with you this evening. Well, thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing and rating our podcast. You can visit us on the web at morningstarcc.org and on our YouTube channel at MorningstarCC. Again, that's at MorningstarCC. If you'd like to support this podcast, please look us up at patreon.com slash morningstarcc. Again, that's patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash morningstarcc.